Hello there and welcome to the 9 o'clock show weekly podcast. It's a compilation of our best interviews from the past week. One woman's story of making it to a major milestone. Jackie Lynham's 50 at 50 list sees her making it a year to remember. Mayo man David McIntyre invented a sensory hub that helps children in schools and libraries. Matt Sarb Cousin is a recovering problem gambler. He's the director of Cleanup Gambling in the UK. And with all the talk of women's sport in the news this week, the director of Nebraska University Volleyball joined me in studio. And on Friday's show, Paul Murphy talks about lovingly restoring phone boxes. There are the stories for the week. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy it. Jackie Lynham turned 50 at the end of the last year and has a plan to mark this very important year for all well, for many varieties of, of reasons. Jackie, good morning to you. Morning, Shay. Lovely to talk to you. Lovely to talk to you. How are you? Well, you normally hear me in the mornings, very early in the mornings, myself and Lillian on Rising Time. That's so right. Now, Big fan of Rising so Time. So you get the disappointment to see me in the flesh. Uh, not at all. <laughs> Delighted to see you. <laughs> you put out a tweet uh, before you were 50 and you wanted to, people to maybe suggest some things to do, 50 things to do at 50. So tell me about that. Yeah, so last year I had a big ambition, which was to publish my own writing. Um, And I wanted to do that before I turned 50. So at the end of September, I published a book called Traces, which is poems and essays. So that was like a big ambition. But this year I want to do things a little bit differently. I want to do quieter things. And for different reasons, I'm having a quieter year this year. Um, So I had an idea that I would do one thing a week for the year. So sort of 50 ways to celebrate being 50. But these are things I want to do that bring me joy. So I know at this time of the year, people have their New Year resolutions and their to-do list and things they feel they should be doing. But this is not things I feel I ought to be doing. These are things I really want to do. So things that would bring me joy. But my budget is tiny, Shay. So I'm um, looking for free things, things that cost maybe 15 euro. So going to, I love culture. I'm a big culture fan. Anything, music, film, theatre, books. So I was thinking of places I could go and that's why I put out the call on Twitter for some suggestions. I had a few suggestions myself, but I thought, you know, it's always a good idea to get other people's ideas. So what what kind of suggestions did you get back? Okay, well, um, my friend Rose suggested going to the Hugh Lane Gallery. They do free concerts at at lunchtime on Sundays. Seemingly they book up very quickly, so I'm hoping I'll be able to bag a ticket for one of those. In Dublin, yeah. In Dublin, yeah. So I'm based in Dublin. Um, Now, I work for Dublin City Library, so I'm well aware that there's loads of free events all the time going on in the city and around the country. Libraries are brilliant for that. So I'm looking for other cultural institutions that are having free or cheap events. So I bought tickets for the Abbey Theatre. They do 15 euro tickets for every performance of their plays. There's always a certain number of cheap tickets going sale, so I'm going to see the queer fella, um, Brendan Behan's play. That looks amazing, yeah. I yeah, heard well, seemingly, there's a rumour in our family that we're related to Brendan Behan somehow. My mom is a Bean, and we're convinced somewhere along the line we're related. So I I know his um, it was his anniversary last year, and I meant to delve a bit more into that, but I didn't get a chance. But anyway, I'm going to see that. Um, myself and my husband are going to do a Gershwin um, Blue, Rhapsody in Blue 100 Years in the National Concert Hall that I heard advertised on the radio and normally those tickets would probably be quite expensive when, but when I looked it up there were 15 euro tickets available so I bagged two of them um, and I started off last week actually with on Saturday and was my first 50 at 50 idea I went to see Mary Coughlin and Maria Doyle Kennedy at a Nullick Naman event in the North Strand Church and that was amazing. So that was a great start. So my expectations are high now. But even though I'm on a small budget, I'm expecting to do some great things. Any this plans year. for outside Dublin? Um, well, now you see, my budget is 50 euro a month. So it'll depend if I can get somebody will transport me outside Dublin for free. Maybe. Yeah. You got the train to Wexford. 
Now, I did that a few years ago and I absolutely loved it and I did it on my own. And that's the kind of thing I'm looking for. I'm not really looking to do everything with people. I'm actually trying to do things on my own this year because I don't really want to consult anybody about this. I know that sounds quite selfish, but no. it's not for selfish reasons. When it's you're married, you need to have to explain everything that you do. <laughs> you know, I mean, in fairness, that's the way it works. But. Well, I love spending time with people. I have great friends and great family and great husband, and I will be doing some of these things with them. But I want to do things that um, bring me joy and that I don't really have to consult everybody else about. Um, so that might be going to the cinema on a Tuesday afternoon on my own to see a film that nobody else wants to see. Or going to Beauty's Cafe on a Monday when it's raining outside and bringing my book with me. Oh, yeah. I'm going to a park. Um, there's loads of great parks in Dublin and I'm lucky to live near a few of them. St. Catherine's Park and Lucan and the Phoenix Park. But I might try and delve over to this side of the city a bit more, maybe the south side. There's loads to offer. Loads yeah. to offer. I'm from the north side, so I, I, I like I like both sides. And what's the family situation at home? How many is there? Are there children? Yes, yeah, so I have three children. Um, I have a son who's 20, a daughter who's 17 and my youngest daughter is 14. OK, so that gives you a little a little more freedom. My kids are around the same age. You have a little, little yeah, more freedom. Yeah, a bit yeah. more time to myself now. As you, as you, as you journey there. 51551, by the way, 9 at rt.ie. Any suggestions uh, for Jackie? You turned 50 when? 30th of December, so I'm just a little bit over a week into this new decade of my life. So. And how's it been? Has it seen massive changes in your life? No, not so far, but uh, I'm, you know, I'm happy to be here at this stage. I know some people don't like getting older, but to be honest with you, you're either getting older or you're dead. So <laughs> I'm happy to be here and just making the most of life. Um, I've got a, a great life and I'm happy to... Yeah, just do some nice things this year just to make it a little bit better. Did you have the proverbial big party, the big the big five O party? No, I didn't. You know what? Because I had a launch for my book in um, October in Pierce Street Library and that was like a big night out and it was brilliant. But I didn't really get a chance to talk to people. And I, I'm sort of one of these people that likes to have good chats, you know. So I like to talk to just one or two people at a time and have a proper conversation. So I had a little gathering in my kitchen with some of my closest friends and my sister. Oh, that sounds right. It was lovely. It was exactly what I wanted. We had the karaoke machine on. We were dancing around the kitchen and just having a bit of a laugh. There's a, a text in that says uh, that, that we heard um, heard your piece on Sunday Miscellany, Jackie's piece on Sunday Miscellany. Did you have a piece on Sunday Miscellany? I did. I've actually had five pieces on oh, Sunday well, Miscellany. I do, do apologise. <laughs> five? Yeah, That's so I, I came quite late to writing. I only started writing in my 40s and a good friend of mine, Aoife Barry, had a piece on Sunday Miscellany and that inspired me to send in a few pieces myself. And I was very lucky that, um, I think it was the second piece I sent in, it was about the Hollis Flowers, about blagging my way into the National Concert Hall years ago when I was a teenager to try and get in to meet them because I wanted to interview them for my school magazine. So I wrote a piece about that and Sarah Vinci, who is the producer, the brilliant producer of Sunday Miscellany, liked it and invited me in to record it. And she was so encouraging that day when I was leaving the studio. She said to me, shall we see you again? And I was like, oh, really, will you? And she said, yeah, of course, keep sending in pieces. We're always looking for new voices. So I did and I've had four, uh, five now. And actually, I had an amazing experience um, last year because I wrote a piece about having a December birthday. And that was chosen to be included in the Christmas show in the National Concert Hall. So I got to stand up in front of a sold-out National Concert Hall to read my piece. And then the amazing RTE Orchestra followed with their music. And it was just fabulous. And my mother was there and my, and my husband and kids. And it was just an amazing experience. That's real bucket list stuff, isn't it? It really was. It was just incredible. And I was surrounded by lovely people that were taking part with me and... 
Yeah, and I've uh, I was able to include those Sunday miscellany pieces in the book, so I've collated them all together. So I have some poems, some newspaper articles about health issues and my dad having Alzheimer's disease, and then lighter pieces. The Sunday miscellany pieces are lighter, and they're all together in, in that collection. Traces in your everyday life as a librarian, you're surrounded by books. And, and have you studied writing, or did you just decide one day I'm gonna I'm gonna get a pen and paper or a laptop and I'm gonna start writing? No, I didn't study writing. I mean, I would have been interested in it as a teenager, but I think I worked for 10 years in my library job in the Dublin UNESCO City of Literature office. Um, My dream job, I just got so lucky to be assigned there. I absolutely adored it. I was organising events such as One Dublin, One Book and children's reading campaigns. And I worked a little bit on the Dublin Issue Award. So I was surrounded by writers for 10 years. And I suppose some of that just seeped in. And after I turned 40, I had a lot of thoughts in my head um, that were sort of building up from my 30s about motherhood, grief for my dad who had died from Alzheimer's disease. And I just wanted to find an outlet for them. And it was just for myself. I started writing for myself. I did that for a couple of years, just literally typing, bought a very cheap laptop and started typing into it. But then one day I was going through my phone, just scrolling and came across some notes after a, a medical appointment. And out of nowhere, somewhere magic, I don't know where it came from, this creative uh, rain uh, came down and I th- notes, these, these notes appeared, these words appeared and I just typed them into the phone and I realised then I'd written a poem, which I'd never done before. I wouldn't have said I was even that hugely interested in poetry. And what I did was I went back to some of those things that I'd written down and started shaping them into poems and I got really good encouragement from some really close friends of mine who encouraged me to keep writing and they read them and I started entering competitions and some of those poems were shortlisted for competitions. Some of them were published in journals and anthologies and it just kept going with it. And then I started writing the non-fiction pieces and there was a couple of articles in the Irish Independent as mentioned about health and um, body image and a bit piece about my dad. So yeah, and I just love it. I absolutely love writing. It's given me this huge interest and it's one of the things that actually energises me. I suppose there are so many people there who have maybe, as you had, bits of notes on phones and, and notebooks and have had this great intention. The, there's a great scene, I think, in one of the a film with Billy Crystal where he has the typewriter. The, the night was and he spends all his time trying to get to the first line. And, and the advice I've heard so many times, just do it. And people are looking for people. People are looking for stories. They're looking for items. Sunday Mazzellany are always looking for people. The a Word in Edgeways, which is on Rising Time in the mornings, people are always looking. I know that Sheila, who produces that, is always looking for new voices and, and new pieces as well. Take a, take a risk and send it in. We tend to put ourselves down about this kind of thing, though, don't we? Yeah, I think it's hard to to get past the first step. I suppose it, it, it felt really scary to send my work out into the world. I remember the first time I submitted a poem to a competition, I actually felt physically sick at the idea that somebody that I didn't know was going to read it. But to be honest with you, I think as, as you get older, you lose a lot of that fear. I, I definitely have. I I don't really mind if people don't like my work. I, I don't do it for other people to like it. It's a huge bonus if people like what you do. And I think the thing, the best thing to know is that you're never going to please everybody. Um, I remember being at a writing workshop with Elizabeth Reapy, who was the writer in residence in the libraries at the time. And she said, nine out of 10 people mightn't get your work, but one person will. And that's all it takes. And I've found, I've, you know, with writing, um, the, publishing the collection, I've got loads of messages from people and different poems resonate. And a lot of people have mentioned the article about my dad with, about Alzheimer's because unfortunately loads of people are going through that kind of trauma themselves. Do you mind me asking about your dad? And I don't want to, if you don't want to go there, that's OK. No, absolutely what's not. What's his name? Tommy, Tommy, Tommy. Lynham. So, and where's but, Tommy? Tommy's in Rohini, from Rohini. Well, he was from Rohini. He died 15 years ago now. Um, but... 
unfortunately he got Alzheimer's disease and he had a, a wonderful life before that like he would have been the first to say he had a very very enjoyable life he was huge into sport um, he was the president of the Rohini Shamrocks Athletic Club oh, when yeah. he died and he was just a great man a gentle man actually at his funeral that was the word that was most often used gentleman he had a love of Irish which he passed on to me and Irish music I remember listening to the Chieftains and the Dubliners on Sunday mornings he'd put the records on so he gave me that grow for music and for Irish um, but yeah unfortunately he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's um, disease in his 70s I mean to be honest when we look back we realised that a lot of the you know a lot of the symptoms were there but we didn't know them so probably from the time he was 70 there were symptoms but we sort of put it down to old age hearing loss things like that um, he died when he was 79 the last couple of years in particular were very hard um, especially for my mom Nora who was minding him and who did an amazing job looking after him but yeah it was a very traumatic experience I think when you're losing somebody in front of you you know you're grieving for somebody who's still alive which is very difficult so every time he would forget something you're, you're kind of grieving the person that he was I remember he turned around to me one day and asked me did I have any sisters? You know, he didn't know that I was his daughter. And then I realised that there was all these memories of my childhood that were gone from him. Um, so, yeah, it was a very difficult time for us, I think. Um, looking back, I felt, I felt when I describe it, I describe it as being traumatic. It was a traumatic year, especially the last year. Um, but we got through it. And, yeah, I wanted to write about that because... Uh, I know my mom found great solace at the time reading about other people's stories because you can feel very alone if you're a carer and that's caring for anybody. It doesn't have to be somebody And she, she kept him at home as long as she could. Yeah, she did until actually about eight weeks before he died and even he went into St. Isha's um, hospital for a few weeks and they were amazed that, that she had managed to keep him at home so long. But he deteriorated quite quickly once he went in there and then he ended up in Bowman Hospital for the last couple of weeks. Um, but it was a hugely distressing year for us in particular the last year because I had it in my head that people with Alzheimer's were kind of lost in their own thoughts and were happy in their own worlds. But it wasn't like that for him. Unfortunately, he was very distressed himself. I think he knew something terrible was going on, but couldn't really understand what it was. Yeah. Uh, Alzheimer's tends to be a catch all phrase, but actually everybody experiences it. And I have a little bit of experience. Everybody experiences it in a different way. And that is when s some people can be very content and very happy yeah. and some people can be very distressed. So that, that's distressing for you. Did you find writing about it helped? It took me a long time to write about it, Shay, to be honest with you. I wrote a poem about it first and then actually Yvonne Hogan, who's the editor of the Living and Health section in the Irish Independent, saw it and asked would I write a, a longer piece about it. Um, and I was a little bit reluctant, but I talked to my mom to make sure she was happy about it and she was and, and she read the piece before it was published. It did help, but I cried a lot writing it. But I think getting messages from people who, that the article helped them. I think the fact that I wrote so honestly about it. But I also was really keen and I wanted to make sure that I got a sense of my dad before the Alzheimer's in that article as well because he did have a wonderful life. He was a beautiful person. Um, people loved him. Did The book you have, Traces, which is your, your self-published book. Yeah. Um, did you write anything? Is that piece in there? It is, yeah. Do you have it handy or is it? I do, yeah. Do you want to just give us a little flavour of it? Just sure. a couple of paragraphs, if you wouldn't yeah. mind. Yeah. Um, check the brochures of different language cultural institutes, loads of free subtitled films, etc., etc. Okay, so my darling dad, 
Every old man I see reminds me of my father when he had fallen in love with death. Patrick Kavanagh's words are to the forefront of my mind as I'm walking through St Anne's Park in Rohini one May morning. Although my dad has been dead for over a decade, I'm hit by an unexpected wave of sadness after exchanging smiles with an elderly man out walking his dog. My dad, Tommy, died from Alzheimer's disease in July 2008. It took me a full year to recall any good memories and several more years to fully come to terms with his illness and the manner in which he spent the final decade of his life. Whenever I try to describe that period of our family history, traumatic is the word that immediately springs to mind. His illness dominated every conversation for years with my mother, Nora, my sister, Barbara, my husband and my close friends. Now, that's, you know, that's emotional to hear. That's emotional to hear. Shay, can you ask Jackie where her book is on sale? She's so inspirational. I'm also a published Sunday miscellany writer, so I'd love to read her book. It says Teresa and Santry. So where oh, can they get the book? Thank you, Teresa. Yeah, so the book is on sale in Alan Hannah's bookshop. That's alanhannahs.com or they have a shop in Rathmines. Also Books Upstairs and their website is booksupstairs.ie. Or if you can't get it there, you can send me a message on Twitter. I'm at Jackie Lynham. And it's also available in the libraries. Obviously, I'm a massive fan of the libraries <laughs> of because I've been are. working there of you are. most of my life. So, um, yeah, Dublin City Libraries, Wexford Libraries and Tipperary Libraries have bought copies. But the great thing about the public libraries, I'm sure most people know this at this stage, I'm always saying it, is that if you have a library card for any library in the country, you can reserve a book and it will be sent to your local library for you. So if you're not in Dublin, Tipperary or Wexford, you can still reserve a copy of Traces at your local library. Um, I want to talk to you about your own health as well but we'll take a little break and come back to you then Now you have a plan to take some time off in March why is that? Yeah so um, I've been suffering with IBS since I was 19 so over 30 years now and I've just you know it's it's come to a stage where my energy levels are very low um, I think it's an accumulation of being unwell for so long has just really come to a head and I sort of felt I was heading for a bit of a Physical burnout. So, so I, for people who don't know what IBS mm-hmm. is, I'm sure everybody does, and, and people are probably suffering from it and don't know they're suffering from it. Can you just give us a little outline of what IBS yeah, stands, so IB- stands for? IBS is irritable bowel syndrome. So I think about one in five people suffer with IBS. It's very common. People have it to varying degrees. Some people will get flare-ups and then they'll have times when they feel fine. I suppose it's a, it's, it's a bowel syndrome, so it could be bloating, pain, diarrhoea, constipation, there's different um, different symptoms for it. Everybody has different symptoms and everybody has a different way of, you know, some people will get respite from medicine or change in diets. Um, it is a lifelong condition and there isn't really a cure for it. There's a, you can manage it. Um, so I've been through all sorts of remedies, gone through, you know, medical um, you know, scans, tests, medical procedures, every diet you can think of. Uh, people are very well-meaning and I can imagine now in the next few minutes we're going to receive 50 to 100 texts with yeah. various um, remedies and various treatments. You, you safely say you've tried everything. Yeah, and actually I wrote a piece about it for the Independent and it's, it's in Trace as well. And when I wrote that, I kind of was trying to come to terms with having a chronic illness. It's a very difficult thing when you're sick all the time. Um, I haven't had one full well day in over 30 years. Sorry, 
when you say you haven't had one so every single day I have IBS so for me it's it's going in and out of the bathroom in the morning so for me to be here this morning um, I left the house at 10 to 8 I set my alarm for half 4 I got up at 5 o'clock so that would be a very typical day for me I need to leave two and a half to three hours in my morning before I leave the house so without being too personal you have mm. a number of trips to do to the bathroom yeah. before you leave to be reasonably okay yeah once I'm once that morning is gone I'm usually fine for the day but I think what's happened now is that the energy levels are really affected by it so I calculated yesterday um, 30 years of it is over 11,000 mornings without a break do you remember when it started yeah, I was 19. I was absolutely fine. I went over to Germany with a friend of mine for the summer, my really good friend, Julie. And it just started. The symptoms started that summer. Um, diarrhea, cramps, bloating, pain. Continued on for the summer. When I came back, my mom brought me to the GP who referred me to a consultant in the matter. Did all the usual tests, uh, colonoscopy and endoscopy. Um, put me on some Culpramin, which is peppermint tablets and fibre gel. That didn't work. And then at that point, I sort of started all the alternative remedies. I went to get, you know, this intolerance test was starting to become known at that time. Went to see a man in the city centre who, you know, I saw him giving a talk and he was talking about these blood tests where they could identify foods that you're intolerant to. And it seemed like this was going to be the solution for me. And I did the test and got a list of uh, foods and went off them for three months and went back to him and there was no improvement. And he said, oh, unfortunately, you're one of the 10% that it doesn't work for. So this sort of continued for years and years. I would try, I've tried everything, Shay. I've tried every version of elimination diet. I've been tested for celiac disease. I'm on a low FODMAP, low fibre diet at the moment. I went back after that article was published, as you say, I got loads of suggestions for new things to try. And a friend of mine um, told me about a thing called SIBO, which I hadn't heard of, which is small intestine bacterial overload. And the symptoms are very similar to IBS. And I thought, oh, maybe this is it. Maybe I'm going to get the answer. And I tested positive for it. I found somewhere that tested. And I had to go back then to my consultant and she treated it and it didn't work. It just, as in, it didn't help the symptoms. How do you, how do you deal with that disappointment? Because you, you built them and anybody who's been sick or, or Will, will, when they find that there might be a cure, you get very excited about it and you wait for it to work and, and it, hopefully it works. Well, how do you deal with the fact that it's, it hasn't worked? Um, I think at this stage, I sort of know there's probably not going to be a solution, but you do let hope sneak in. So I went after that treatment didn't work. The consultant's great and she said, look, we'll try other things. And she sent me for specialised blood tests and a camera capsule test and I went back in August to get the results of all them and unfortunately what happened was the more tests you do something else shows up so all a few different things showed up nothing to do with the IBS that will need to be monitored but she can't find a physical solution for this um, and to be honest with you even though I sort of knew she was going to say that I left the hospital devastated because I thought okay well I'm almost 50 and I've had this since I was 19 and I'm probably going to have it every day until I die so this is why I'm taking some time off. I need to kind of get my head around this and I need to take some time to rest. I'm exhausted. I'm absolutely exhausted. But in those 30 years, you've you've lived your life, you've travelled, yeah. you've got married, you've had three children, you have a career and you've managed all of that while needing to plan three hours before you leave the house. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and look, to be honest with you, there's people that are far worse off than me. I consider myself... It's a very Irish thing to say, isn't it? There's well, it's worse. true. I, I mean, know it's true. It's I know absolutely it's true. true. There's people with chronic illnesses that can't leave their house and there's people with terminal illnesses that would love to be in my position yeah. and have, you know, years ahead of them. So, and I've got a wonderful life. I honestly do. I've got an amazing husband who is my rock, Brian, and just... You know, the days I feel like crying, he makes me laugh, and we have a, we have great fun together. You know, it's all it's not all doom and gloom. I hope I wouldn't. I don't want to give that impression at no, all. And in fairness, you're not giving that impression. Yeah, no, but I have. I'm a, just listening to what you're I saying. I have a and great I'm life. I have great friends and great sister and mom. And you know, I suppose you just keep going as much as you can. And you know, for a lot of the part of the day, I do feel well. And if you met me, you wouldn't think I was sick. I look fine. You know, I don't look like I'm sick. No, you look fab. No, yeah, no, you really, I, yeah. I love the earrings, the whole lot. Everything is, <laughs> you're looking good. Thank you. Looking better than I am. I'm in bits. <laughs> um, but it is exhausting. And I am, yeah. I suppose at this point, because it's gone on so long, I think I'm emotionally and physically exhausted. So to go back to your original question, that's why I'm taking some time off. I want, I feel that I can do chronic illness and work or chronic illness and family. And at the moment, I need to concentrate on my health and my family. So I'm, t- I'm very lucky that I work for Dumb City Council and I'm able to take some time off. I'm able to get some parental leave and it's, it's unpaid leave. So that's obviously going to be a, you know, a bit of a challenge, but I absolutely have to do it if I'm going to keep going. I have a friend who has IBS and when they had their children they found it tenfold it got worse ten time, tenfold worse um, you had three children <laughs> how was it during pregnancy? It was really difficult during pregnancy there were times when I lay on my bathroom floor crying and I remember reading a couple of years after that that Kelsey Grammer's um, wife had used a surrogate because oh, she had IBS. Yeah. I think it was the first time I realised that actually this is not an insignificant thing because you sort of play it down. And I suppose you look, you know, women just get on with things, don't you? You just get on with things. And I'm really lucky that I was able to have children and, you know, I was able to get pregnant and I was able to carry those children and have them. I, I don't take that for granted, but it was really difficult. Yeah, the pregnancy were different. And also when they were very small, because if you can imagine trying to look after children I, as you're running in there to the bathroom. I was kind of alluding to try and look to, look to look after children when you have a hangover. When you have a condition like you have an IBS, chronic IBS, which is a chronic condition, then I don't, I don't imagine how you, how you you did it, but you did it. I did it. But and I, you're still doing it, I'd imagine. Yeah, still doing it. And of course it has an impact, it has a negative impact on your family life and your children and your husband, you know, of course it That's does. That's your, your personal life. I mean, it's not, it's not easy. Well, I thought we were just going to talk about 50 things to do. <laughs> Sorry about that, brother tone there. Still looking for well, exciting didn't. things to do you this did. year to cheer well, me up. Send, well, people are sending them into and we'll pass them on to you. Just to remind us where we can get your book. Yeah, so Trace, it's called Traces, Poems and Essays. And my name is Jackie Lynham and it's available in Alan Hannah's um, bookshop. So alanhannahs.com or booksupstairs.ie or you can get it in your local library. It's lovely to meet you. Lovely Thanks. to talk to you. Really enjoyed it. How's mum doing? She's good. Good. Yeah. We'll send her our, our regards and to the three embarrassed children who hear that you're on the radio today. Ah, they won't even listen, I'd say. <laughs> they're all in they're school, they're school, working, college. They're all fine. We're going to play a little track. This is from Villagers, Dawning on Me. Jackie, thanks so much. Thanks, Shay. David McIntyre is a, well, he's a bit of a genius, although he didn't always feel that way. He came up for an idea with, for something that would make the school day a lot easier, not just for his children, but for countless others across the country and beyond. And he joins me on the line from County Mayo now. Good morning, David. Good morning, Shay. How are you? Do you know what? I'm in, I'm in flying form this morning. I have a muffin and a cup of tea and I'm in the heat. That's not too bad, hey? You're not doing too bad. Which part, which part <laughs> of lovely Mayo are you in? 
We're in Kilchamaw here. That's where we have the office. Ah. Uh, so I'm looking. I'm looking out here on the the Karen Hills here in front of me. So, sure. Uh, quite, quite picturesque so for, the, for what we're doing. The glass is half full. This is it. We'll get, to, we, we get to the specifics about the product you invented, but you, you saw a need for, for, for this. Uh, for se- We've heard of sensory rooms before, but we'll talk specifically about the one that you've come up with. But why, why did sensory rooms come into your life? Uh, my daughter was diagnosed uh, about eight years now ago with, uh, as autistic. And uh, we, were, we were brought along, as many parents are, to uh, a program called Early Birds, which trains parents uh, about autism and what to expect and what to look out for, etc. And uh, it was there, actually, that we met other parents and we started hearing about the issues in schools, the barriers facing people with autism and education. Um, and it kind of reminded me of my own uh, education journey, if you like where uh, I spent a, a lot of my time outside the, the, the wrong side of the door in the classroom. And I just, um, I, I guess I got a little angry and I decided that I might just do something about it and see could I fix the problem, uh, which we did. <laughs> angry is a, is a reaction some people have had, and I, and, and I speak from personal experience, with when, when a diagnosis comes um, or maybe somebody says, maybe there might be something wrong here, or you go, no. No, actually, there's nothing wrong here. What, what was your reaction to a diagnosis for your daughter? Um, it was denial, actually, at the beginning. Um, I, I hadn't noticed it. I was working long hours at the time for a company, and um, I was on the road a lot. Uh, it was my wife that had noticed that uh, Ava wasn't meeting her uh, milestones and uh, started the process to get a diagnosis. Um, and when I was told, I, I must say I was very, I was very angry about the, the, the labelling of my child, if you like, um, as a parent uh, and as being disability, having dyslexia myself, having a disability, um, I've had to hide that disability my whole life. Um, and I just was fearful for my child, really, that she would have a similar experience. Um, and, and she will, unfortunately. That's just the reality of it. Your, your experience in school maybe coloured that? Well, uh, I don't want to you know, play the, the, the fiddle too much, but the, the my experience in school wasn't very positive. I left at 15. I, I was lucky enough to get an apprenticeship in engineering toolmaking. Um, and that was my, um, my ticket really out of the education system. But the lack of an education certainly held me back all my life. Uh, promotions, I was looked over for promotions. I was, I was always on the back foot in my mind that only if I had that piece of paper that would show that I was good enough, I would actually be good enough, if you know what I mean. Uh, looking for that validation uh, throughout my life. Uh, and I just, I just knew that with an autism diagnosis that there would be a similar journey for my daughter. I actually have two, daughter, uh, two daughters that are autistic. So, you know, they're, they're going to have challenges just like me uh, and some more different challenges than I had. So it's it's just a journey of life, isn't it? And and how do we best mm-hmm. manage that? And how do we best put in structures around it that can help? You, you mentioned a, a program which I wouldn't mind giving a little bit of a mention of is the Early Bird program. Yes, yes. So the Early Bird was very good. The, the it was the Western Health uh, Service up here that actually delivered that first, um, and it, it's it teaches you about um, sensory processing issues. It teaches you that um, autism is a spectrum and that the person can actually move in that spectrum at any time. 
which frightened the life out of me uh, and my wife. The idea is that your child could be verbal today uh, and tomorrow be nonverbal and they're, and they're, and they're forward be nonverbal. So they can actually move on the spectrum at any time. So it's quite a frightening diagnosis, really, for a parent. Um, and we were we were lucky in some aspects as well. We we, we met other age groups as well. There weren't just two and a half years of age that uh, that had just got a diagnosis. There was uh, parents there of teenagers, of young adults uh, as well, that were able to tell us about the 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 challenges that they had faced uh, and try to prepare you for the journey ahead, if you like. Now, I, th- I think as men, we love a job. If someone says, you know, if someone says that, that that snow needs to be moved off the driveway or that car needs to be towed and the wheel changed. You're like, right, I'm, I can do that. I'm, I'm practical. Yes. I can do that. You, you turned your skills towards Ava and say, well, what can I do? Well, a couple of things came together at the same time. I was made redundant for my job. Um, so I had a couple of quid and I decided to strike out my own in a, in, in a design um, uh, company. Um, and what happened is I was actually asked by a local school to design a sensory room for them. And um, I started doing the research. And no, with my little bit of knowledge from the early birds, um, I, I'd done a bit of a deep dive, if you like. And I just couldn't figure out how a, uh, a sensory room could adapt quickly to the individual's needs. You might explain what, it, what a sensory room is for people who don't know what it is. Well, a sensory room can be a lot of things. Um, the typical sensory room would be uh, different colours, maybe um, a bubble machine with, with nice bright lights, uh, soft toys, um, and some kind of audio and visual. Um, it can be tactile. It can be a lot of different things. It can be trampolines, for instance. It can be swings. Uh, there's a lot of components to a fully equipped sensory room. Um, and to work correctly, I found you needed an occupational therapist to actually deliver the intervention. Um, and what's happening in schools, of course, is that they don't have that occupational therapy expertise at hand. And so they, they just turn everything on, if you like. So um, my child, I have two kids, as I said, with autism, and uh, they have very different sensory needs to each other. And I just thought to myself, how, do, how does this piece of equipment uh, or these 10 pieces of equipment adapt quickly to, to my daughter's needs? or to an individual's needs to get the best out of it. So t- tell, us, um, tell us about the first one you built. Well, the, the, the first prototype was, was, uh, was made in my garage, and uh, uh, we were very proud of it. We, we, uh, we got it up. I spent my own money on it, which uh, I, would, I would recommend other people not to do. Um, <laughs> Some entrepreneurial we, advice there. <laughs> <laughs> I, put the, I put the cart in front of the horse, if you like. And uh, because this is, that, that is probably one of the traits I have with my dyslexia is that I, I just get on and do it instead of thinking about it too much. But, uh, yeah, we, we had that school. They said they would buy the, the first cubby. And, of course, I was delighted. But I wanted to test it first. So I asked them to test it. And uh, it failed, completely failed. Um, uh, and they, they didn't want it anymore. So it was a huge blow to me. Um, but we didn't give up. Uh, the reason it failed is the, the usability of it wasn't very good. Um, we were using a lot of third-party apps to control the visuals and the sounds and the lights. So it was it was kind of awkward for the person then to change the lights, for instance, or change the music. Um, so it actually was a great favour to us because it was the first time we decided to make our own software 
Uh, and that development uh, in the last three years has been remarkable. Um, so when you go up to a cubby now, uh, it remembers who you are and it transforms the environment inside to match your sensory needs. And usually within 10 minutes, you're back in the classroom participating with your work. You mentioned the input of a, an occupational therapist. Did you, did you work with occupational therapists to put this together? Yeah, we had two. The, 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 the early birds team helped us, actually, would you believe, in the, in the design of it initially. And uh, we actually have a team of occupational therapists working with us all the time that create the experiences for each individual person. So when you buy a cubby, um, every program is actually made for you, tailor-made for you. The, the cubby itself, do you want to describe what it looks like and, and how it works? Sure. Uh, it's, it's a big pod. It's, it's wheelchair accessible. Um, and there's a touch screen on, on the outside of it. And inside is a, an audio-visual experience, if you like. Um, and the idea is that it's a blank canvas. So when you walk into it, if you don't want any sensory input, as in you want just to enter a quiet space, uh, it can deliver that. But if you want to uh, get energized, for instance, because there's two different types, really. There's hypo-reactive and there's hyper-reactive. So if you're hyper-reactive, we have a set of programs that helps calm you. Uh, and what we're trying to do is balance you in the center. So um, you can actually participate. And we're, we're about participation more so than inclusion. Inclusion is important, don't get me wrong. But participation is, is what we're trying to achieve. Uh, and if you're understimulated or hypo-reactive, we are able to energize you and bring you up into the middle and balance as well. So what happens is we measure the effectiveness of the, uh, of the experience and then we readjust the experience over time if it needs to be adjusted. It's not working for the person. So we have different programs now made by our occupational teams for ADHD, for instance. They're very different than the ones for people with autism. Um, we know that we can adjust it for people that are seeking so a lot of people uh, with autism seek sensory stimulus and we're able to deliver that, but at the same time change the narrative of the program over time so that it helps to reduce the anxiety that they're feeling. And really that's what we do. We reduce the anxiety that people are feeling. So at the, at the moment, from my experience, an SNA is usually assigned to a child with, who ASD uh, with, with autism and depending on where they are uh, within the, within ASD, they will be, if they find they're overstimulated or they need, they'll be taken outside. That's the, the thing. It's like being taken out of the classroom every time. Um, and, right. and sometimes, I, I, sometimes I, look, it's the only solution because particularly in a small school where one storeroom has been converted to be a sensory room or a quiet room or a soft room, whatever it might be, if there's two children that need it, then only one child can go in. So the other child end up, ends up in the hall playing football or walking around outside. It can, I think it can have quite a negative impact. Yes, it can. Um, and, and it's not the school's fault. They're, no. they're overwhelmed. And they're not, uh, in my view, they're not trained to look after the individual needs of, of all, all these children that are coming. I don't know, do you know about the UN Article 24 in education? No, you which mandates, it mandates a, 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 an inclusive education despite disability. So what, it's, what it really says is that if you have a disability, it's your human right to get a mainstream education. So the school has to make adoptions for that to happen. Um, and of course, Ireland and 165 countries signed that in 2008, and it's been a hell of a journey for them since. Um, so sensory rooms are very good if they're, if they're correctly managed. 
Uh, but you're right. It, if, it's, if there's more than one person using it, it, it doesn't actually do any good for the individual. Uh, that's our experience. So the cubby is one at a time, and uh, we schedule the breaks as well. So our occupational therapist will actually tell the person what time to give the break at, and it's one at a time. Uh, and walking the hallways and walking outside is a huge problem because the, the, the child or the young person is missing their education when they're outside. Uh, and that's what, we're, that's what we're stopping in the schools that put in cubbies. The, the breaks are scheduled, they're 10 minutes long, and the, that person is back in the classroom, typically, within that 10-minute time frame. So they, they, they only miss a minimum amount of time in the classroom. We're, we're talking about schools, and I suppose in people's minds now we're talking about primary schools, but these are not just for, for very young children, these are for children of all ages and, and adults. Well, the, the, the idea at the beginning really was to make a product that would suit everybody, and of course that's not easily done. Um, uh, our first uh, sales were actually to uh, Temple Street Hospital. They were the first ones to buy a copy, um, and followed soon by, by uh, Skuldara, which is in Galway. Um, and we have these now in every level of education, uh, primary, secondary, and third level. Uh, and actually, we've developed an app now that allows parents or the individual themselves to download their programs for free and actually bring them to any cubby location. So the idea is the continuity of care which, uh, throughout the education system. So what we were hoping would be that uh, in primary school, when they went to secondary school, that they could bring their programs with them and then get that continuity of care right through the education system. So we've been very successful there. Um, and even we're talking to some businesses now who are looking at supporting the neurodivergent community within their, their structures, uh, looking at Cubby. And again, the app allows people to be anonymous and autonomous, which is very important uh, from my own personal experience as well, that a person can get the help they want without actually needing to go to their boss or their, their worker, their HR department, uh, uh, to try to figure out what their needs are. So, um, yeah, we're, we're very proud of that, that, that we're actually putting these in a lot of different locations now. Even the Aviva Stadium? Uh, even the Aviva Stadium. We, they were one of the first people to buy it. Uh, and, and it's a remarkable story because what Aviva did is really about participation. And, and they were really at the forefront uh, three, four, five years ago now. Um, they, um, they wanted the person to be in the stand celebrating the match, shouting for their team. And they put a cubby right behind the stand uh, so that the, the person could come, have a quick little break and go back in shouting for their team again. I just thought it was remarkable because a lot of football stadiums are putting in sensory rooms. And again, don't get me wrong, but they're usually in a space that is unused and therefore out of the way. So it, it's, it's, to me, it's about being up forefront and actually being integrated into the community. And that's what participation, I think, is all about. There's a couple of texts coming in. Could you ask your guest uh, how much a cubby costs to install and maintain? That's from Marion in Artane. They, they cost €20,000 to full delivery, full turnkey service for you. And, uh, and they cost about 3000 a year uh, after that uh, for maintenance and service. So that's the physical pod, including all the software, equipment, everything installed and Dada, it's done, it's ready, you can walk into it and start using it for 20000 That's right, yes. Um, and we provide full oversight then on that as well. So we're continuously measuring the, the progression 
and we change the media and we change the programs um, all the time. The, for ADHD, for instance, we know that we have to change them programs continuously. And so we're always bringing in new media and uh, new uh, sounds, etc., so that the experience can be changed. Alan Sligo says, my daughter has a cubby in her school and uses it. It's fantastic. I have such admiration for this man. He's such a visionary, taking his own experiences, skills and empathy to create such a useful tool for people with disabilities. I'm inspired. He is a genius. He saw the problem, thought of a solution and implemented it, all while raising children with disabilities. I'm in awe, says Alan Sligo. Wow, there you go. How are you taking compliments? Uh, not very well. <laughs> I don't. I don't. Uh, don't take it very well. No, I'm afraid it's, it's part of my dyslexia. Uh, it's. It's. You never feel that you're actually doing any good at all. But yeah, it's. It's. At times we we sit back and we we look at what we've achieved and we're 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 quite proud of it. Uh, and I'd like to just uh, shout out to my wife as well, the co-founder yeah. of Copy, uh, Diane. Uh, without Diane, this would never have happened because. I knew how hard it would be to do this because when we put a cubby in, the school has to change the way they do things. And um, we're finding more and more of those schools. And I actually really was very afraid to start this journey because I knew the hard work that was ahead of us. And my wife gave out to me one day. She said, listen, you're going to have to get off your backside and go and do it. (laughs) 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 She was the the catalyst to, to get this done in the first place. So... Uh, can, it's interesting you, how things go. Do you mind? Do you mind me asking without breaching any confidentially? How are how are your children now? How are they progressing through their their yeah, educational um, career? Yeah, the uh, Sophie is in secondary school now. She's she's thirteen. She's thriving. Uh, she's a very um, different personality now to, to Ava, who would be more sensitive. Uh, Ava is struggling with reading and writing, as I did, and um, she's a bit behind the class, but. The school are really digging in and helping her a lot, and we can see a huge improvement in the last year. I guess, you know, when you have any child, they all learn at different paces. Mm. And one of the things that myself and my wife are, are, are good at, I think, is, is having the patience to let the child learn at their own pace, but also giving them the tools that they need as best we can. Um, on a limited budget, I must, I must say as well, but it's all about patience and understanding. And I hope that that's what we we're actually doing with our children. They're thriving as best they can. And um, we're lucky. We, we do think that they'll have an independent life beyond school, if you know what I mean. And that's the biggest worry for a lot of parents is, is will that child, will that young person be independent? Uh, and, and that's the challenge that faces a lot of parents. So we're very lucky that we don't face that challenge. Well, you've stepped up to the challenge, certainly with the Cubby. So cubby.ie for any schools or any individuals or organisations who want to get more information. And I know you've lots and lots of plans for Cubby to expand worldwide for world domination. So we look, we look forward to hearing more about that. And look, thank you for taking the time. I know you're very busy and you're taking the time to come on the line with us uh, this morning. And uh, just a couple of texts. Great vision and understanding, says Fiona. Truly remarkable man. Congratulations and very best wishes to him. Your wife might disagree, of course. Says <laughs> a Galway listener. So look, thank you to David McIntyre, cubby.ie. Thank you very much. Now, problem gambling is something that we as a society are becoming more attuned to, uh, which is just as well given it affects more people than you might think. Last year, research by the ESRI estimated that one in 30 adults 
in Ireland are impacted. Imagine that. Imagine being in a room with 30 people. At least one person there has a problem with gambling. And my guest this morning knows all too well the hold problem gambling can take on you. And it's a story, well, his story is one of challenges to overcome, hope, I suppose, and determination. Matt Zarb, cousin, good morning. Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Not at all. You're very, you're very welcome. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. You joined us from the UK uh, this morning. I know that those numbers that I mentioned won't, won't come as a shock to you. And I just want to mention as well, people who are listening may be impacted. We're going to talk about some challenging um, times in people's lives, including men- mental health issues. And there is uh, help available, rte.ie forward slash helplines or gambling care. Uh, and we'll give those resources out at the end. There's a lot we want to talk about, including the app that you co-founded. But if you don't mind, Matt, we might just go back to, to the beginning of your story when when you first realised I, I might have a problem with gambling. Yeah, it was probably when I... Um, I, was, I was only young at the time. I was only 16. So uh, I was underage, but I was still able to go into betting shops and uh, gamble on fixed odds betting terminals, which at the time were machines where you could gamble up to a hundred pounds a spin. And I was, um, I was going in there more and more frequently. And then I think I realized I had a problem when I just got paid from a part-time job and went to the betting shop. And obviously you don't intend to, to lose all the money that you have, you've just earned in that job, but, um, you start betting and, uh, you start chasing losses and then your stakes get bigger and bigger. And then it's a bit like, um, when you if if you if you drink alcohol your your judgment becomes impaired the more drinks you have it's a bit like gambling gambling's very similar the more the more you start gambling and the more into the session you get you you know you start to shut the world off outside and and you become extremely zoned in on that activity and uh before you know it you know you're sort of in this sort of trans like state so what you- shop and I've lost all that money so yeah <clears throat> About, about just give us approximately what year this. So you're 16, and I'm not trying to find your age out now. But you might tell us what age were you, or what year was that? Oh, yeah, that would have been 2006. So, so I'm now I'm now 33. Um, so yeah, it's a while back. Well, it's really, I suppose, relatively speaking, it's not that that long ago. Now, in, in Ireland, we don't have uh, FOBTs, as they're called, uh, those gaming machines with fixed odds. Uh, they weren't uh, part of our uh, world, but but the, the but the games that you probably played on it are part of the betting world here. Roulette is one of the games. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, they had roulette on there. That was the most popular game. They had blackjack. They had slots as well. Um, so, um, I mean, now an online slot. Uh, which obviously, obviously you can play all these games online now. Um, online slots is the biggest revenue generator from of all gambling products. About 50% of the revenues are coming from online slots alone and around half of people that use them are either considered problem or at-risk gamblers. So they're very, very addictive product. And um, uh, unfortunately, that's the, the nature of the business. It's People might sign up to bet on football or racing, but they will be cross-sold the more addictive content. And where you have these types of gambling products, um, where you have basically rapid event frequency and people can stake up to you know very, very high stakes, uh, you, you end up with a, a huge amount of harm associated with them. And, and, that, and that's why you know, we wanted to, well, we, we campaigned in the UK for a, a maximum stake on fixed odds betting terminals of two pounds a spin 
And we've obviously campaigned for limits, similar limits to be applied online as well. But you're, you're a 16-year-old, you're going into a betting shop. You didn't have access to a phone with an app on it at that particular stage. Um, would that continue then from 16, 17, 18? And, and did, did the problem escalate? Yeah, so I, um, I was gambling for, for about four years. Uh, it escalated to the point where I was gambling... Um, Practically every day. I mean, I would it would be when I had money. Um, so any any money I could get my hands on, I would sell all. I'd have sold all my possessions uh, on eBay. Tried to get you know as, as much money as possible to just to gamble with, and um, uh, yeah, and I was ended up gambling sort of up the maximum hundred pounds a spin um, just to get the same the same rush and the same feeling as as uh, as I had done before. But you know, you end up having to gamble more and more just to get the same the same feeling and uh and and that's what happened as it's a very dangerous product in that regard i mean the thing about roulette is it is an addictive game anyway but if you, if it's played on a digital platform whether that's a machine or on online uh at you know three spins a minute and you you can stake up and you can do repeat bet and there's like all of these facilities to like speed up the experience you're basically making that game more and more addictive than it than it already is and um uh, and yeah, that that continued until I was twenty, um, when I lost a huge amount of money, uh, which was part of a student loan, and uh, I'd maxed out several overdrafts, and uh, had to sort of confront where g- the gambling had got me. And at that point, I I did want to take my own life, and so that's where it sort of led me um, into that very dark place. Um, thankfully, obviously, that didn't happen. Um, but uh, I can see how it impacts people in that regard. You just feel so helpless and lacking in agency. It just takes you to a place where you just feel like completely subjugated into this this activity where you feel every your whole life becomes about when your next gamble. It's quite uh, it's it's quite it's quite grim to be honest. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. That that secrecy that you. And shame that you have as you're you're spending so much time and so much money and so much of your mental energy on on gambling. That, that I suppose it's a, it's like a multiplier effect. It feeds in. You must like at sixteen, sixteen to twenty years old. You must have missed out on an awful lot. Oh yeah, I did, and it, it was just not being present in that in moments where I would have felt you know like that was quite a significant or important point in my life. So. Uh, not being, um, not taking things seriously with regards to sixth form college or relationships, or just not being present with my family, not being present in, not being in the room, just always thinking about, always thinking about gambling, always thinking about my next bet, always being in the betting shop when I would otherwise be meeting friends. You know, it it, it was that con- it, everything revolved around gambling and my next bet and. Uh, and it took it took over my life. I would say that's fair. And 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 the thing about addiction is you you don't end up getting enjoyment out of anything else. You 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 have it's it just focuses all of your attention on that thing. So you, you everything else seems boring by comparison. Like the things would be quite quite important and significant. Otherwise, just you know, if, if you're addicted to gambling, they just feel like they're just irrelevant and boring. So yeah, you you it does erode all of that, all of your perspective, which I think is, is also a, a factor. 
there are people listening today who enjoy gambling and are able to regulate it themselves and, and don't spend money they can't afford and enjoy it and they enjoy the community and, and like and you, the same in the UK as Ireland there are pubs in isolated areas that have a bookie shop next door and that one pub is able to support the staff the building the lights the heat the IT technology to go around that and there is a little community involved in it and people, people like that it's a bit like the pub as well where you yeah. your community is these people and everybody's doing the same thing so you, you're part of the tribe as such but you, you identified the problem as you, as you mentioned the debts started to escalate all your time was spent so where did you go for help? Um, so I, I got uh, cognitive behavioural therapy which is, uh, um, yeah, which sort of helped me recalibrate how I looked at gambling. I still, I still, um, I still kind of uh, relapsed after that for for a few months, and it wasn't until I was like about six months after I was suicidal that I actually was able to give up. So it did take a long time um, for that to happen, and it was difficult to give up. So, you, know, you have, you do need support, and you do need help, and. Um, there wasn't an awful lot of it at the time in in Britain, uh, to be honest with you. So I, you know, I was I had to sort of deal with it myself. Um, but um, there is a lot of help out there now, and I think you know I know you mentioned that you were going to say where the where to um, find it after after the interview. But uh, yeah, it's important that people know that there is support and there is help, and uh, it's an addiction like any other. Look, I mean, I've got no issue with people if they want to gamble. That's their choice, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I think that um, it, that's a good thing. I think people should be able to gamble in an environment where it reduces the propensity for people to get addicted. And I think that, unfortunately, the gambling industry, the way it's operated, is not in that space at the moment. It's still re- over-reliant on people losing money they can't afford to drive the majority of their profits, which is a shame, but it doesn't have to be like that. And, that, and that's you know that's sort of my view on it is... I'm not, even though I was addicted to gambling, I'm not anti-gambling. I just think that there's should, there's a way in which we can structure the regulation of it that could limit the damage, basically. And there's some, some changes to legislation coming in Ireland for for that particular aspect of gambling, and that's on the way, that's uh, currently working its way through the Oireachtas. I suppose the big change, and I'm, I'm 51, I have children in their teens and in their early 20s as well, is the, the rise of the, the gambling app. So you, as a 16-year-old, you had to physically go to the bookie shop. You had to find your way to the shop, spend the time there. But now, while you're waiting at the bus stop, you can take out your phone and and bet whatever, bet on 15, 16, 25 different things and track them. Yeah, when I was uh, <laughs> when I was campaigning against fixed odds betting terminals, uh, which was at the time obviously like the biggest revenue driver in the industry, um, uh, gambling apps and smartphones and the prevalence of smartphones um, started to really take off. And uh, I thought it was frightening how how easy it is to to access these these types of gambling products. The first time in human history we've had the situation where people can they carry around a device where they can play slots on it. I mean, it just that for me is just un, unbelievable in in terms of like the advances in and, and in, I think in a negative sense the advances in technology and what that's what that's been able to to offer people and and not just slots but casino games, roulette games. We've always said. We'll, we'll keep them in the casino because they're quite addictive and quite harmful. So we'll we'll make sure, you know, that they're not everywhere. And now we've just got them on smartphones. So 
Um, so I really wanted to do something about that for people to get addicted. And that's why I set up Gamban, which is uh, software that you can download onto your devices and it blocks access to gambling sites and apps. And it's designed to be as difficult to remove um, as the operating systems will allow. So anyone who wants to download that onto their devices will block access to you know, the, the apps won't connect and any gambling site they try to get on it won't connect either so so, you, so um, can, yeah if, if i might summarize you, you make uh, and from my understanding you make a decision to download gamban which you co-founded the technology behind that you pay a subscription which is how much is the subscription uh it's uh, three euros 49 a month um and uh, what we're trying to do at the moment is make it free at the point of need in as many jurisdictions as possible. So in, in Britain, it's free through the National Gambling Helpline. Uh, in Norway, it's free through Mon- Monopoly. In Finland, free through the Monopoly. And in Ohio, it's free through the Time Out Ohio self-exclusion platform. So we're trying to make it free so where you- people, uh, you know, in place people need it. So ho- hopefully when there's a regulator in Ireland, you know, we can do similar there too. Yeah, and I know Anne-Marie Caulfield is the incumbent at the moment and, and possibly will be the regulator when the legislation clears the houses of the Oireachtas. Um, so you download it. It's, it's, it's easy enough to download. You pay your subscription, but you've made it extremely difficult to remove. From, remove. And one of the reasons for the subscription, in fairness, is the, the app people, the, uh, the IR URLs and the addresses of these gambling apps and, and some of the casino apps. I know we're talking, we, we started talking about bookie shops or bookmakers, but actually it's a much wider mm. um, industry than that. Um, they, they they change all the time, so you're co- constantly updating the the app. Yeah, we're constantly updating the block list. So the block list will will add um, new gambling sites and apps that appear uh, in real time, and we'll get that get those added to the block list. And there's uh, approaching eighty thousand gambling sites and apps worldwide. So everywhere in the world, that, that's the software will work. And um, and we obviously need to make sure that the it's the, the the app itself and the software is optimized on each platform. And there's always new iterations of different operating systems that we have to keep abreast of. So, um, yeah, so it's a subscription model, but that's to ensure that you know ideally we we were we're in a position where we can obviously the the product has to be sustainable, but we yeah. can offer it ideally for free through different channels and yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to hopefully doing something in Ireland and have you have you subscribers in Ireland already uh, yes we do we have a few hundred um, it's increasing every year um, but uh, we've not done any marketing or anything like that so I think this is the most marketing I've done about Gamban um, in Ireland uh, to date so uh, yeah so obviously we want to, to build on that and, and want it to be available for people if Obviously, it's a, a double-edged sword, really. You know, you, in an ideal world, people wouldn't need Gamban, but if they do need it, it's, we want them to know that it's there for them if they need it. And uh, with a new regulated market coming in, it's very likely that there's going to be an increase in people that get addicted to online gambling. So it's important that the, the support tools are, are visible to them. There is hope after gambling addiction. And when I know, you know, people would say it's an ongoing and you've keep, you have to keep an eye on it. But you've had a successful career. You've had a career in politics. You've founded the app. So I just want to just, as we finish now, I want to finish on a message of hope. There is hope. Yeah, I mean, well, look, I mean, looking back it, um, and where it's led me and, and, you know, given me the opportunity to, to change the law uh, around gambling and to to start Gamban and to help people as a result, you know, I wouldn't have changed anything. And I think to get into that position is a real privilege to, you know, 
to have gone through the trauma that I went through, but to then look back and say that I'm glad it sort of I'm glad it happened in a way um, because of all the good things that it's led to yeah. and all the people I've been able to help. You know, I think that that's that's a really nice position to be in, and that and anyone can be in that position having gone through that trauma. So yeah. try to turn it into a positive. I would say. I just want to read you one text before you go. Please tell that man his app saved my life and my marriage. Thank you. Wow, that's awesome. That is so good. Thank you for reading that out. Thank you. Matt Sarb, cousin, director, cleanup gambling and co-founder of Gamban. Thanks for joining us this morning. Well, that's the sound of 92,003 fans packed into the University of Nebraska's Memorial Football Stadium last August. Spectators witnessed the world record attendance for a female sporting event when the university beat Omaha in a college volleyball match. Lindsay Peterson is the Director of Operations at the Nebraska Volleyball Programme. She's in Dublin this week to help launch the 2024 uh, Lidl Women's National Football League. And I'm delighted that she's here with me this morning because there's so much to talk about when it comes to women in sport. Good morning, Lindsay. How are you? I'm great. I'm delighted to be here and have had an amazing experience in Ireland. And um, it's such an exciting time for for the sport of the Women's League to be launched yesterday. And, and you could really just feel the buzz in the air. So I'm really appreciative that I had was able to be a part of it. Great. Well, let's talk about why, why you're here. Like we say in Ireland, we support women's sport, but we don't attend in big numbers. Take us back to last August in Nebraska. It was definitely a monumental day and hearing that play over, I could still get goosebumps thinking about that day because the impact of the day and the ripple effect that we've had since was not anything that we expected. Uh, we were, we were, were competitive, obviously, in nature and our rival had beat us in setting the attendance record. And so we were out to take it back. And our only opportunity to do that was to hold a volleyball match in our outdoor football stadium. And um, initially, the planning of it was to hopefully get fill it halfway full, 50, 60,000. Um, but we quickly found through our marketing efforts and the way our ticket sales go- went after the first couple hours of that first day, we knew that we had an opportunity to really do something special. And so um, when we sold out the stadium and the talk of a world record um, came in front of us, and we knew we wanted to do that. And our fans are extremely loyal fans in Nebraska. We had a great fan base and they like to try to do something no one else has ever done. And I think to think about doing that for a female sport was definitely monumental. And it was monumental not only for our program, the sport of volleyball, but women's sports in general. And just the media attention across the world that it received, I think really made a statement about the direction that women can do it, go in sport and female sport has in the future. Can you give us a little bit of your, your own background? Were you a student at the University of Nebraska? Or? Yeah, I, I played there. I played for our current coach, who I work for is my boss now. And so I played for the volleyball program. Um, I grew up in Nebraska, was a little girl who uh, attended some of the Nebraska volleyball games, dreaming one day I'd be able to put on that uniform and, and represent my state. And um, my dream came true. And then now I, I feel like I have the best job in the world too, getting to work um, back with our volleyball program. But I am a mom of four. I um my husband, I met my husband in the athletic world too. And um, it's just been very 
um, I'm very grateful to have had the experiences that I've had in this job and and working for Nebraska volleyball and the Nebraska athletics. And I think it's just a um, the direction we're going and the impact they want to make on sport and on the young li- or lives of all these young women is incredible. And to be a part of that is really special. Before this world record attempt, what have you seen, what were the attendances like at the volleyball matches? We, we Our attendance is great. We sell out our venue, but our venue only holds 8,000 people. So um, the demand uh, for p- fans to see our game was there. We weren't sure that it was at that level. Um, but the opportunity to play there was going to allow fans that have never seen us play to see us play. And and we approached it as we wanted to be able to inspire young girls that have never seen us to see that they can dream big and some, you know, their future is very bright and what they can do is even bigger than what we just pulled off on that day. And so um, it didn't happen overnight. Our fan base, it, you know, 50 years ago, they started with the volleyball players were, you know, raising funds to have uniforms and um, setting up the chairs for fans to come watch. And you, you got to attend a volleyball match if you, following our uh, football match or football game, fans would walk by the venue. And if you had a football ticket, you got to come into the volleyball game. And that's really how it started, getting fans in the seats. Okay. Um, but so you're sort of piggybacking off the men's game? Absolutely. Yeah. And we had to be creative doing that. The coach at the time was like knew that – um, our football was huge. We were selling out our football stadium. We had a, a, a great tradition in that program. And he he thought we need to try to grab some of that momentum and that that fan base to c- come on board with us. Like, I can tell so, you there, there are people listening in GAA, in, uh, in, in soccer, in various sports, whether it be uh, female or male or whatever. And they're used to doing bag packing what, this, in the grocery store where we pack the bags and people throw us a, a couple of a little bit of change or say, yeah, there uh-huh. you go. Or whether we're doing sponsored walks, whether we're doing a bake sale, we're doing all that. So we, we, we identify with that. And I can tell you as a parent of a 15 year old who's in GAA, I, what we do is in our local, our local team, um, there's a quite a big concert venue in one of the local parks and the promoters of that concert venue pay the local GAA club to provide stewards who work on the roads around the place in orange jersey. So you'll see the parents sitting there drinking cups of soup uh, or cups yeah. of tea sitting on the chairs. And that's what we do to raise funds. So I, I definitely think we, we can identify. By the way, if, if you're involved in women's sport, and we're talking about really participation today, or attendance actually, trying to get people to come and see. Like we've got all these brilliant athletes and brilliant sports people in Ireland and we want people to see. Do please give us a shout, 515519 at rte.ie. So the free ticket was, that's a great idea. So the free ticket comes out. And, and you might think, I know there might be a little bit of pride saying, well, we're not going to do that. We're not going to piggyback off somebody else's event. But these are the kind of things that you had to do. Right. We we had to think outside the box and take a risk. And I think that's the important thing. If anything time you're trying to create change, it's going to be uncomfortable. And um, you maybe have to put yourself out there a little bit. And the coach, you know, 40 years ago realized that and, and did it. And within years, then started to see the momentum of our program picking up and and then it came to where now we're a revenue-making sport, and we're one of very few in the nation that in female sports that makes revenue. And so we've come a long ways, and you think in a pretty short period of time. And um, I think back to that day in August and seeing those former players who were the ones that were raising those funds and were setting up the chairs and to see the raw emotion they had on that day and the tears running down their face to know – that they never dreamt it could come to this, but they were so thrilled and excited that we'd reached this point and for the young women that got to be a part of it. And now we hope that that inspires more young women, you know, to do the same in the future and that 
the, the players that played in that match are coming back in 20 years and seeing even greater numbers and statistics and um, that the the coverage of women's sports is in a greater level. Volleyball, your own sports, it's, it's growing exponentially around the world. It is. It's one of the most popular sports right now. And you see it in youth development and um, within our high school programs and in the United States and, and just on, on a global factor as well. And so uh, this past year, just in, in the sport of college volleyball in the United States, I mean, the media outlets really jumped on board and the viewership increased and set record numbers and the number of matches televised were set record was a record setting year. So we're, we're getting in that heading in the right direction and we're trying to continue to, you know, go on this momentum headed in the right direction for for women's sport in general. You were invited to come and talk about the uh, come and talk at the launch of the the Little National League. Um what what advice did, obviously when you knew you were invited in November to come over and you obviously thought about it and maybe you did a little bit of research about the Irish um, game and about attendance. What advice did you give at that talk? Well, I talked about the importance of taking a risk and not to for great reward you have to have great risk and I think um, Lidl really stands out when I think of that, to think of the risks they've taken to invest in the LFGA and the program and, and the number of years they've been supporting it since 2016, um, putting $10 million into the development of the program. I mean, to think of that investment, they're taking a big risk, and that's what – what a league needs. I mean, we had that same thing happen and that's how we got to where we were to set a world record. If you don't have someone with that buy-in, there's no way you can get to this point. So I think that's the biggest thing is you have to be willing to invest in it, whether it's resources, money, time, value, whatever, you have to invest in it if you want a great product. And um, it's gonna you're going to have some roadblocks and barriers, but you can't let those roadblocks well, Tell me what those roadblocks you. and barriers are. What did you encounter? Well, for us, it was a little different because we were incur- we were facing taking an in- outdoor sport or indoor sport to play outdoor. So there was a few different very vari- you know barriers that we were coming across that don't really apply to to the launch of this league. You, you might give us a little bit of the flavor, the climate <laughs> of Nebraska as well, for people who aren't familiar. Right. Whereabouts is it in the United States? It's center of the United States, and in August, you could have 90-degree temperatures, you could have pouring rain, you could have 40-mile-an-hour winds, you could have it <laughs> snowing, possibly. I mean, the weather is incredibly and the unpredictable. Winter? And Yeah, in August. It's it's still, you're getting into fall, but you never know what you're yeah. going to get. And and um, The summers are beautiful. They're they're a little warm, but and humid. But yes, I love our four seasons. You're, we get the, four the, seasons. The Nebraska Tourist Authority has just been on say you're fired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think they just know I'm being honest. So, so that's the, so there's all sorts of outdoor. So you're t- taking this indoor sport outdoors. Yeah. So that was a very. Um, we obviously were playing midweek, which. Normally, when we're selling out our football stadium, it's a football Saturday, you know, schools, classes, and in sessions. So we had some of those different things we had to approach. But applying that to what the league has to do and the barriers they're going to face, I mean, you're going to receive – you're going to have times where um, you feel like you're hitting a valley. And I just – I encourage them to feel like you need to focus on the peaks as you're trying to progress forward. There's going to be some valleys along the way and – a little few setbacks, but you have to be creative to find your way around. And and I really encourage them to make it a, a moment where the family has an incredible memory and it's about the fan experience and some so let's, things let's, you let's can get, Let's go there. Let's talk yeah. about that because you're talking about midweek and sport, other sports events being on, big sport, bigger sports events, let's be straight, at the weekend. So you had to, to make midweek a thing. We did. How, we, did, you, how did you do that? 
Well, we had to go to our president and chancellor and ask if we could close down school for the day, because in order to bring 90 some thousand people onto campus for an event, um, it was going to be very difficult to have classes in session. And um, we met with our transportation, our city transportation, our security, um, all of our medical uh, safety people, and tried to figure out the best plan for a midweek game. How are we going to make this work when there's still businesses there in session Saturdays. Most of the downtown businesses are closed and and you don't have that work week to deal with. And it wasn't just our uh, university that took that to heart. I feel like kind of the state as a whole took it. I mean, people came in for the entire day. At 8 a.m., there were already people on our campus ready for the event to happen that night. They, were, they approached it as a, almost like a football Saturday where you showed up and you tailgated with friends and families and you did. There so was, tailgating is where you have a little, a little, we call it a little party. Right. Little, little parties little in the party parking on lot. The, on the back of a back of the SUV or the back of the pickup and you sit on the back and you, you have a little, maybe a little barbecue. Yeah, a little barbecue, maybe some fun competitive games and um we did, we had some different activities with, you know, music, yeah. you know, and we had a act to interactive center for kids to come in and, you know, make posters for the yeah. game and do things well, like we, that. I don't know, you haven't been here on a match day in Crow Park, um, on a big match day. There are lots of activities outside as well in Sample Stadium and in, in, Par- in Par- Parky Cueve. There are those activities. Now, we don't have the tailgating tradition that you have, but we could start it so, <laughs> since since lockdown. We've met a lot more out- outdoor dining as well. Can I, can I ask you something as well, Lindsay? And I know time's a little bit tight, but I wanted to ask you, I have a 15-year-old daughter who's involved in GAA and she plays hockey. Yeah. She plays hockey as well. Um, and I'm, I'm, she was involved in gymnastics and when she left, they kept me. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I put out the chairs. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I put the beam out. I do the parallel bars and then someone comes and makes sure they're tight. You know, I, I do all of that stuff. One of the things that I hear a lot about, and there's been some research done on it um, in the gymnastics world and also in the GAA world, is keeping young women in sport, particularly teenage girls. Have you come across that in Nebraska? I don't think the challenge is as great there because um, it's really the youth sport has grown so much. So the the clubs and the youth levels are huge, the high school levels, but there's opportunity beyond high school for, for uh, women to play as they move on. And I think um, it's important for you know, we talk about young boys, it's, it's normal to see them with a ball or, you know, throwing the rugby ball around or hockey stick or whatever. Um, you, It's just the perception is boys are geared toward sports, maybe not so much for girls. But I, I think back to, you know, my kids, I have a, a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, and they're co-ed, they play co-ed baseball, co-ed soccer. I mean, they have, they're competing with girls. And I think that's where the switch needs to be is – Sport isn't just for for men, and it can be something that women continue on. The intensity is still incredible. The athletic skill is still incredible. Um, the passion for the sport is there, and it's it's a the lessons that you learn learn in sport are so valuable to life. And so, I feel it's very disappointing to think that. If I saw my kids, or even think back to my my career as an, as an athlete, that at twelve. I fell out of sport because I think of how much it's impacted my life and the great lessons I've learned for it from it. And so I, I think it can be, as, it, as you look at the young families now, you can use it as a family event and get families involved. I mean, you say you're still involved with what your daughter... <laughs> she's not even there anymore. She's not even there, you know? And so I think that's important is um, to take take that. There, there's going to be the opportunity to go support this 
you know, league here and, and take the opportunity to go support him as a family and see it and, and give that as an, another possibility opportunity future for, for a young girl to have. And I think that's very inspiring and promising and it just gives them hope and opportunity to dream bigger. And you have four boys. I have four boys. (laughs) That's right. So I'm not, I don't even get to experience that, but from their point of view, I mean, they, to them, coming to a volleyball match is bigger in their eyes to watch the vo- women volleyball players than going to the football game to watch the men play football. So, I mean, that's just, it's not foreign to them to see women in sport. And I think that's where the switch needs to be is is it's on an equal playing field and the gap needs to And close. this is your first time in Ireland. First time and in Ireland. And it won't Ireland. be the last, I hope. It won't be. So- I'm so excited to follow the league and... And to come back and bring my family back. Yeah, bring and them it's back. A, You'll be very welcome. It's an amazing, amazing country. And the city has been, I mean, the people are so warm and welcoming and friendly. It's just, I've been thoroughly enjoyed my trip here and was delighted to come. Brilliant. Well, the uh, Get Behind the Fight is the campaign. It aims to increase uh, attendances. The Division 4 fixtures get underway on Sunday and the full National League programme kicks off on Saturday the 20th with Division 1 uh, Dublin and Kerry meeting at Parnell Park. Throw-in is 5.15. It's live on TG Cahar um, and that'll be repeated at the All-Ireland Final. So thank you so much, Lindy Peterson, Director of Operations, Nebraska Volleyball Programme and new Irish person that we've adopted. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. We were talking about phone boxes yesterday and how some of them were going to be taken away from Cork City and replaced with uh, various things. Uh, Huge reaction. Many people feel hugely nostalgic for the old phone boxes, including Paul Murphy, who's made a business out of them. Good morning, Paul. Hi, Shay. Can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. How are Uh, you? Great stuff. I'm great, thank you. Great to be on. Good. Good. Just pull the string on the tin can that you're speaking on just a little bit tighter. (laughs) 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 You know, we we tried that when we were kids. It never worked. That never worked. Because you can never you can never pull the string tight enough. Press button A. <laughs> tell us about tell us about your business called Phone Box Man. Um I restore original Irish phone boxes and um put them back into use into into putting out into into the communities around the country and um for all for sorts of uses uh, mainly for local communities bring bring them back into the villages and towns for use uh, with defibrillators uh, to, for, to, for a service for the community um, and um, some private uses put them in. I, I had a guy put one in, he put one in as, as a urinal beside a, a little bar he built on the side of his bar for the lads to run in and have a wee. Okay. Um, and one went there a few weeks ago to London to be used for an Irish, an Irish builder over there, put one as a shower beside his, his swimming pool outside in his garden. So, so just to clarify, these, these are the old concrete phone the boxes. Old, the, yeah, the, the old original boxes. Yeah. Do you want to describe them to people who, who maybe, maybe well, there's people listening who they're, don't remember them? They're, they're cream and uh, and green, chili green and antique cream. There's the funny one wants to paint a box. Um, and they've got the telephone, the old telephone um, uh, sign on top. And... They have the, the AB boxes and uh, AB phone, but they had the AB phone inside them on a, a directory shelf and some instructions or, or a little notice from the from the PNT or Telecom Marion or whoever it was at the time. They're usually on, so, a, on, a, on a concrete. They were made of concrete, were they? Absolutely, solid concrete, yeah. The only wooden part was the door. And that's the only bit that, that didn't survive, really. The, um, the, the box, they, they, they would last forever, although rust got into the, the window part and... and um, Back in Telecom, Aaron went around with the angle grinders and cut all the windows out and put perspex in them. So a lot of them don't have the windows still in them, so I have to reinstate them. 
um, in concrete. So and do you, there's do, a lot of work involved. Do you recreate the original wooden door? Do you put the, the leather strap on that was used yeah, instead of the I spring? Yeah, I put the leather strap on. Yeah, leather strap on and the spr- spring as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I do. I do all that. Yeah. And you know, so I make them as. Sorry, you know the way sometimes now you can buy new car scent. Do you do you put the special smell in as well that needs, <laughs> needs to go? In? <laughs> I listen. I, I've often uh, thought about giving them a spray, spray bottle of, of some kind of scent that would have been in tomorrow, but I leave that to themselves. <laughs> but you also need somebody outside. Knock. Are you finished? Yeah, knocking. Yeah. yeah. Um, they must be hard yeah. to find now, though. They are. They're very scarce now. And um, most of the ones that, that that I would restore are where people who knew someone, because there's, there's a lovely video and it's well worth looking at. It's called Bye Bye Now. And you'll find it on YouTube. And it's, it, it's a documentary on the guys that went around taking, taking away these phone boxes. And they, they used to just, just smash them up in the back of a trailer. So the ones that have survived have either, um, if you knew someone in the P&T at the time uh, or whether it was Air Telecom Air or whoever it was at the time when they were starting taking them out. If you knew someone, you could say, listen, they probably said, listen, can I have one of them if you're getting rid of you know of anyone? And they got it and it's in their yard and they've done nothing with it for 30 years. And that's usually when I get them because they say, listen, I have this here. It's, it's, in, it's in a terrible condition. Um, can I sell it to you? And that's basically how I get them. But I, I also realised that there's a finite supply on them. So I've, I had moulds made of an original... Um, of an original box so I could manufacture an exact replica uh, in, in concrete same as so you, you wouldn't tell the difference between the two but and I sell them as well the replicas and uh, what, were you, what were you doing before you started to get involved in phone boxes uh, I had a, a long and successful career in uh, the security industry electronic security CCTV and um, access control and intruder alarms and uh, I had it was a good career and um, I put the first camera system into Crow Park, which was worth over a million euros back in 2003. And uh, so there, 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 it was nice. That was enjoyable kind of stuff. But um, through, I suppose, getting caught up in the whole corporate thing and the, the, the recession when things hit in 2008 uh, and my mental health wasn't going so well. I was suffering from depression and anxiety. And uh, I, I had been getting an interest in, in antiques and restoring things. I was throwing clocks and stuff. And I, I, I always fancied to look at the clock, the phones, phone boxes. I thought they were, they were very cool because growing up of a certain age now, you, you, you do remember them and they, they kind of stick in your mind. So I said to the wife, I seen one on the deal for sale. I think it was it was about a thousand euros. And, uh, and it was in bits. It really was in bits. There was, there was no windows or nothing in it. And... Uh, I said to the wife, I said, do you mind if I, we spent uh, some of our, the few bob and the bank on this and me not earning? Uh, but she said, yeah, go on. She was, said, if it keeps you busy and, and occupied you, she'd be delighted. So I did. And that was, that was where it all started. Um, I was doing it. I was living in Collins Avenue at the time and I was doing it in the front garden and it's a busy road. Everyone was stopping and talking. Everyone would stop and have a chat with you about their memories and all the things they got up to in it and their members are some guys would come in, they worked on them. A guy came in, he used to fit them originally and he gave me an original brand new old stock handle that he had in the shed. And another guy gave me an AB phone for it. And just there's so much interest in it. Uh, and that, it went from there really. Okay. Um, um, did you find, you, you just it's, it's just something that struck a spark or made a spark of me there as well. You said about restoring things um, when when things were a little bit you were on, down, feeling down. When you were talking about yeah, anxiety yeah. and depression, did you find restoring things to be therapeutic? 
without a doubt, without a doubt. And I still do. I still find it very rewarding. And even the phone boxes, I've done so many of them, but it's 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 rewarding going through the processes. And when you get to the stage that you're actually painting this thing that you've either created from scratch or you've restored and brought back to life and then putting the door on. And and, and you see, the, when the guys, when you, when you have a, a, a tidy towns committee and they come up to look at it and you can see them beaming that they're going to get this back in their village again. It just gives me such a, 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 a feeling of, of pride and and accomplishments that that, that I've, I've done this. But it does bring so much happiness and uh, it certainly does, and therapy for myself as well. So so whatever it is that, that uh, I'm, I'm restoring, whether it's, uh, I did an Eames lounge chair uh, or, or clocks or different types of furniture, I did a couple of Art Deco. Uh, we, we go on holidays to, um, usually to... Antique fairs either in, in England or France. I brought back a couple of uh, um, Art Deco uh, lounge chairs and uh, they, um, I restored them and, and, and I sold them on. But that, that's, uh, I, I do get great, great satisfaction in it. Have you, and is it, are you busy now with, with the phone boxes? Do you need to supplement your income with something else or can you make a living from that? Um, I don't think you'd make a, a complete living. I, I, do, I do still buy and sell the antiques. Uh, and my wife is working, but um, our, our needs, at this, this age of our lives, our needs aren't what we would have been when we were bringing up the kids. The kids are all grown up and out, out of the house, so um, we don't have mortgages to worry about. So you, 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 your needs, I suppose our needs aren't, aren't as, as high as they would have been. So you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't do it if you, if you were rearing, rearing kids, rearing a family, you know. Or pay the mortgage, but it, it keeps it keeps food on the table. You know, <laughs> it's good, and it, co- it comes in bursts. So normally it could be quiet for two or three months, and then you get three or four boxes ordered, and you're gone. I, I, I sometimes work seven days a week when it's busy. Okay, but um, and and do you ever? That, and that's, do you, are you ever tempted to go back to those to the life of, of no, the corporate world no, of a million euro, no, euro turnover? That, Does that never kick no. in though and go? Oh, maybe I could do this or do that, and no. No, honest to God, I have regret the best life now. I really have. I can, I can, as I say, I could work seven days a week, or I can get up at ten o'clock and saunter into the workshop. I have a little workshop um, in Balbriggan. Uh, it's on a farm, and there's a lovely community there. There's other guys there have units. There's a body shop, and there's a mechanic, and there's gardeners there, and there's a lovely community there, and all supportive. And it's, it's just, I'm, I'm living the life now. It's just, I wouldn't, I would not, uh, uh, I wouldn't swap it for a hundred grand a year. And, I wouldn't, and I was on that hundred grand a year, and I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> I would not do it again. It's not worth it. It's not worth it for your personal health and happiness, and that's 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 what I'm getting out of this job. Well, I, I speak to some friends of mine who are involved in the men's shed as well, and they're young men. You know, yeah. there's a there's a vision that people who are involved in men's sheds are, are, are of a particular generation. They're not. They're they're people of all ages, and one of their great pleasures is that they take projects on, whether it be restoring things around the community, whether it be plant boxes or uh, post boxes or something like that. And they said the satisfaction that you get out of just standing back and going, actually, we did that. Absolutely. That looks, Absolutely. That looks and people yeah. admiring it as well. Um, there was a story about the, the a UK telephone box. Do you have a UK telephone box? A red well, one? Well, I had, yeah. Well, I had the two in, in the house in Collins Avenue and it was a bit of a landmark. I had an English one and an Irish one in the front garden. And uh, it used to be a landmark for the taxi men to stop. By. You pass the phone boxes or before the phone boxes. In fact, it's a long, <laughs> Collins Avenue is a long road. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I love the English one as well. I love it. I mean, they 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 they're they're, they're um, fairly iconic design and they're cast iron. They're a little bit more refined than the Irish concrete ones. But um, I still love the Irish ones. But I I, I have done I've, I've restored two of them. 
the first one I did, uh, and I, the second Irish phone box I I I, I restored, and 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 an English one that had in my garden, and a guy drove 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 by and asked what I sell it to him. It's down in, I'm trying to remember, um, down near Nina. It's okay. outside the pub, each side of the road you have it. And it was back before Ford were voting for Brexit. And you'd have signed up, no Brexit here. You had the English one across one side of the road and the Irish one the other side of the road. It still has it there now. Um, and uh, that, that's where one went. And the other one I still have. It's, 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 it's actually my workshop now. I may I may stick it in my front garden here. I'm, I've moved to Bettystown, so here's a text for you glad to hear the telephone box man is still around I missed him from Collins Avenue love to see the two <laughs> phone boxes in his garden what an inspiring yeah. there's another one for you from Fiona what an inspiring man hope he's proud of how he's helping himself and bringing himself back to life I so ah, and so great. he should feel proud and happy he's really cheered me up and that's from Fiona ah, that's great isn't that great Should we used great. to yeah, well, Sorry, there's just one more from an XP&T worker from Post and Telegraph's worker. We used to lift the concrete floor in the phone box to retrieve coins for tea money. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. And, and I obviously didn't know then, but when, when they were around, but yeah, the, the, the money would fall down. It's just a concrete slab on the floor and you lift it up because they would get, the cables would come up from under the floor. And I've, I've, I've found coins and, and old... Um, uh, the the cards the, oh yeah the, the call cards, cards found, yeah the call cards found a lot of them in the, in the back of the backboards and stuff brilliant actually I'm going to talk to somebody in a moment who loves call cards but how do you get in touch with you where's the, where, what's your f- website Twitter Facebook okay. etc phoneboxman.com is, is the website <sighs> phoneboxman.com and at phoneboxman is the Instagram mainly Instagram and Facebook is at phoneboxman Twitter at phoneboxman so it's Basically, phone box man. <laughs> Everyone knows me as phone box man. <laughs> Stay there with me, Paul, because Emer is on the line from Limerick. Morning, Emer. Morning, Shay. How are you? You are. You are a lover of payphones. I'm told. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit slow to keep up with technology, but um, back in my student days, I spent hours in phone boxes. Um, not too far from Collins Avenue, actually, Paul. Um, I lived on Botanic Road at one stage and um, myself and my friend Christine, I don't know how much time we spent in the phone box down there and 20p coins were gold dust. They were like hen's teeth, you know. You just saved up your 20p's to go and make the phone call home Um, and 20p got to, I don't know, five minutes and then Mommy and Daddy had to ring you back and finish the conversation. So you, um, of course, you. That was one of the phone, things. Yeah, you get a phone call back. Yeah, in some boxes only. It wasn't everywhere, but um, we were privileged on Botanic Road. Yeah, and uh, you uh, just kept your back turned to the mounting queue of people waiting outside. For it. <laughs> Is she ever going to get off the phone? <laughs> but um, I was. Um, just chatting with my my friend the other just last night actually about it and she said they were she also remembered it and um, that they were essential especially if you were conducting a long distance or an intercounty relationship or a romance or an intercompany intercountry romance that uh, <laughs> where would we have been without the phone box wow. I didn't get my first mobile phone until years later <laughs> did you did you ever use a call card oh yeah yeah and um I recently moved house, so there's boxes everywhere, and I came across a collection of phone cards that I had as well. Um, and they're lovely. They're like the phone box as well. They kind of represented, you know, they were like an earth postage stamp. They 
tell you a little bit about what was going on at the time. Yeah. I had one for Tony Fenton's hotline. You know, there was other ones with, um, I don't know. Oh, some you're bringing back memories. Like, you're a winner! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ah, Tony. Hello, Tony. Look, Emer, yeah. uh, did you come across one in Leitrim as well? What was happening in the one in Leitrim? Oh, no, well, I just used to, I used to take the bus up and down to to Dublin. I was studying in Dublin, so I'd be on the bus up and down the old um, N7 all the time. And there was one that just stuck, you'd be just looking out the window. There was phone boxes in every village you drove through. There was no bypass at the time. Wow. And one that always caught my eye was, I think it's the Pike of Rushall. It's down the Midlands somewhere. Um, I drove by there recently because there was roadworks going on, so the road ah. took me on the detour. You went, I call and it Route 66. Boxes. You go on the old Route yeah. 66 and bypass the motorways. <laughs> Emer, thank you so much for joining us this morning and thank you for your memories. I mean, you've sparked a lot of memories uh, this morning as well. And phone box man, Paul Murphy, thank you for speaking to us.